My name is Heidi Hill, and I'm the Grants and Program Director at AWAKE, which is Abused Women's Aid in Crisis. And as far as how we're dealing with COVID-19, um, being an emergency domestic violence shelter, we, we are still an essential service, and we want to remain open and available for the people who need our services. But we are making um, quite a few adjustments to those services in order to remain for um, our, our participants to remain safe and healthy and our staff to remain safe and healthy and able to work. So, for example, we aren't holding um, our support and education groups in person right now. We're doing those telephonically with case managers. Um, we have uh, staff who can work off-site uh, doing that um, in order to sort of minimize the risk of exposure, um, you know, having people in the building who, who don't necessarily need to be there if they're not providing direct services, um, we, we decided it would be better to have them off-site. And we are practicing a lot of social distancing um, in the shelter. So we're, we're asking um, both our staff and our residents to, to really work hard on maintaining that, that six-foot separation in order to, to stay healthy. How is this pandemic affecting women seeking out AWAKE's resources? You know, it's, it's early on, so it, it is hard to say. Um, one thing that we have noticed, we're, we've done some preliminary comparisons of call numbers and, and numbers of requests for shelter from this time last year um, and, then, you know, and then with this month, and our numbers are actually down, which initially was a surprise. We thought that the numbers would spike, but you know, the more we've we've looked at it, we're realizing that that's because people probably are not able to reach out um, to access services in the way that they could before. If they are stuck in their house with their abuser 24 hours a day, finding a safe time and space to call the crisis line, for example, or come you know to the front door and ask for help um, and talk to somebody is going to be much much more difficult. It was already a difficult thing for people to do. Um, mm -hmm. Abusers um, are very controlling, and um, many will monitor the phone calls of their victims, the physical movements of their victims. And so getting away from that, especially in this situation, is, is very, very difficult. And I, I have no doubt that incidents of domestic violence are going up, um, but we may not know that full picture until some of the, the you know, stay-at-home mandates are, are lifted. What is AWAKE doing to accommodate those women who are stuck at home in quarantine with their abusers right now? That's a good question. Um, right now, we have our crisis line, um, which is the best way to for people who are not on site um, or not here in person to reach out to us. We don't have other technology at this time to be able to reach out to people. Um, some people do email. Um, there is a contact form on our website that people can access, but it's, it's not monitored 24 hours a day, so it's not a way to reach anybody in an emergency. Um, so really the crisis line is the best way to reach staff. And, and, and like I said, it's, it's, that can be very difficult to access if somebody is watching everything that you do. Mm -hmm. So we've been emailing back and forth, and in the course of those emails, you said there's usually a delay in numbers going up because people are just trying to stay safe and make it work at first. What might it look like for a 
woman in an abusive relationship to try to make it work during this quarantine? There's probably going to be a lot of um, accommodating abusers' demands. We, we see this at other times. For example, holidays. Our numbers often go down around the holidays because people are, again, trying to make it work. Um, and I think as time goes on, if abusers' demands become increasingly violent, difficult to follow, um, that's where we will probably be contacted and, and, and be more involved, or the police will. But I think when people are in these these tough and, and really almost impossible situations, they're just doing everything they can to survive, they're doing a lot of placating, you know, trying to keep up with abusers' changing demands in order to stay safe. In those same emails, you mentioned that it might help to understand what an abusive relationship looks like when we're not in lockdown from a pandemic. Right, right. I think I think it's important for people to remember what is involved in abuse because I think a lot of people who maybe aren't in those situations will think of abuse as physical abuse, um, you know, the black eye, the broken arm, that sort of thing, um, mm-hmm. and not realize that there are a lot of things that often happen before a relationship gets to that point. There's a lot of, like I mentioned before, that controlling behavior, a lot of verbal abuse, psychological abuse. Um, you know, demands to know where someone's going, who they're spending time with, who they're calling, checking the odometer on the car, checking receipts from the grocery store, that kind of thing, Um, that because it isn't physical, people don't always recognize it as abuse, but that controlling behavior is is very, very dangerous because it's when, when an abuser loses that power and control over their victim, that's where things escalate. And, of course, that looks different situation to situation. But, for example, if, if a victim leaves a relationship, that will be a huge loss of power and control on the part of the abuser. And they may up their tactics and really strike out. It may have been very bad before, but now it may be worse. And so when family and friends, um, for example, are telling their loved one, you should just leave, you should get away, that's very, very well-intentioned, but it can also be very dangerous because when the abuser loses that power and control, like I said, they, can, they, they may up, their, up their, um, their abuse of that victim, and that's where things get even more dangerous. When everyone at Awake is in a meeting, what kinds of things are you guys talking about right now? What are you worried about? Right now, we're worried about people being able to access our services and then once they do, we're worried about keeping them healthy. Um, we we serve we serve a wide variety of people, um, all ages, um, all groups throughout the city. But we've noticed that a lot of the people that we serve have underlying health conditions and are otherwise vulnerable. And that isn't surprising in a in a traumatized population. Lifelong trauma can lead to a whole host of of physical issues. Um, and the way that this virus works is definitely people who have those underlying health issues are at higher risk. And so we are always thinking about how can we keep everybody safe, you know, healthy, um, what to do if someone does get sick, uh, what services to, to connect them to. And, and we're very, very lucky in, in Anchorage because our, our city has um, got such good systems set up. They've been working very hard for, for months now on, on this issue. And so I, I feel very fortunate that we have 
that assistance from the city should should anything happen to um, one of our one of our participants. But that's that's basically our our main topic of conversation. And then going forward, you know, when when can we when can we get back to normal? What are we going to need to see in the city in order to to know that it's safe to go back to normal? We want to open up, you know, the, the, the services that we've had to alter. We'd, we'd love to get those back to normal as soon as possible, but we want to do that in a safe way. So um, those are those are our, our main conversations, in addition to the, the usual ones that we're having about um, how to keep people safe and, and, you know, resources that they may need in their particular case. Those are our usual ongoing conversations, but I think they've, they've definitely taken a, a pandemic focus lately. Mm-hmm. What does your schedule look like right now? My schedule, my personal schedule? Well, your daily schedule, your work schedule. Um, it's quite varied now. Um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, I, we, not, not just me in particular, but all of us, we, we spend so much time dealing with virus-related issues. It's kind of interesting to think of, well, what did we do before? Because we have all of this extra stuff to do now that we still fit into the day. But... A lot of it is dealing with, yeah, virus-related stuff, pandemic-related stuff, trying to figure out where we can source cleaning materials, for example. Um, we've always been very good at stocking cleaning materials and, and emergency supplies. It's always been a focus of ours. But, you know, like everybody else in the city, it's getting increasingly difficult to find that sort of thing. So we spend a lot more time trying to identify sources for needed items than we would have had to before. It's our schedules are a lot of um, dealing with with what needs to happen right now, um, which they they kind of always do. I think that's not unusual for for any of us that work at Awake, but we find that now we're we're having to be even more flexible. Um, you know, our schedules are changing every week to two weeks. We're we're just updating things as as situ as you know the situation warrants, and it's it's require a high degree of flexibility uh, from all of us. But I think our, our team is, is fantastic. We've got a, a wonderful staff and they've, they've just, they've just kept doing what they do best, which is, you know, taking care of, of our clients and they've done a fantastic job. And I'm, I'm really, really glad that we've got the team that we have. You know, I know it's only been a few weeks. It feels like more that we've been, <laughs> It does. <laughs> but do you have any, maybe any stories from this time that, you know, you're really proud that Awake came through or, you know, went over and above? Oh, boy. Um, I think, gosh, probably every story. Um, they're still, like I said before, they're still doing the work that they've always done, our staff members. And, mm -hmm. you know, they're still, they're still getting people housed. Um, you know, a, a lot of the, the clients we work with um, have some difficult backgrounds sometimes. And, you know, our case managers work tirelessly to identify good, safe landlords for them to to be connected to, to get them housed safely. And they've continued to do that through all of this. You know, in, in all of the with all of the challenges that are going on, they're still they're still doing that. They're still getting people safe. Um, I don't know if any one story stands out that I would be able to share. Um, mm -hmm. Just being a a small town, but just that sort of ongoing daily work that they you know they they have not changed and, and if anything that they you know they've they've upped, upped it because they they know that people need to you know the, the sooner we can get people safe and then housed the sooner um you know 
the sooner the better. Yeah, the sooner we can get back to normal, the better. Yeah, <laughs> yes, definitely. So in our emails, you also said that anecdotally, the advocates say it seems like you're getting more first-time calls from people in situations exacerbated by having to remain at home. Could you give me any examples of what these first-time callers are saying? And you can be completely general about it. Okay. Yeah, I, and I and I checked in again today just to see if that pattern has remained the same, and they said, yeah. They said that it's very noticeable um, that there are more first-time callers, um, people who are citing the pandemic as a contributing factor um, to to what's going on in, in their situations. And, and I mean, I, I know that the choice to abuse is a choice and it's on the part of the abuser. And there's a lot of people who are stressed out right now based on, you know, they've lost jobs. They've got other things going on. Maybe they've got relatives that are sick, but they're not abusive. And so an abuser will use basically any excuse that they find available to, to explain their behavior. However, um, a lot of the callers that, you know, we are talking to lately have, have said that, you know, this, this is the first time I'm calling. This is the first time that we've been home together like this for weeks on a, at a time. And, you know, he's lost his job. He spent what money we did have on some, you know, not food, other things. He's not taking care of us now, you know, and if I ask about it, I'm, you know, he hits me, that kind of thing. So whereas there may, there may not have been those contributing factors before now they're present mm. um in 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 people's lives and it's just it's another another layer of pressure and another layer of stress and with people losing their jobs that also contributes to victims um maybe not having the financial resources to be able to leave if they if they were working and supporting themselves before and maybe could get a plane ticket or get a hotel room or something they now maybe can't do that because they don't have a job. And so it, it really limits uh, victims' um, options as well as as um, contributes to the overall stress of the situation. Have you ever dealt with something like this before where in addition to being abused, there was forced isolation? No, not, not something like this that's been community-wide. I mean, isolation is something that abusers often force on their victims for a variety of reasons. But um, that's, you know, on an individual situation basis, um, if you isolate somebody either physically or emotionally from, you know, from seeing friends, family, any sort of support systems, you can, you can very effectively control them if they've got no one to reach out to. But that's again, on, on an individual basis, I, I personally have not seen this kind of, you know, community wide isolation before. So it's not something that I, I've been awake for a 15 years, and I, I don't think it's something that we have dealt with before. I mean, we've dealt with, you know, the earthquake and, you know, the natural disasters that are, in in comparison, short-lived, but um, nothing like this before. You know, we were, we were talking about the forced isolation in addition to the abuse, the community isolation. What, what does a best-case scenario look like in your mind? Best case scenario for what? For what? Um, what specifically? The woman being abused, in in this situation right now. You know, I think the the best case scenario is the woman or, or or whoever the victim is being you know being able to reach out for resources and whether that's you know calling us, um, calling being able to call the police, getting help somehow. That's that's the 
the best case scenario right now because I, I think that access is limited and and I can't I can't comment on the police department because you know not not working there but I, I've I've heard anecdotally that that calls of this type are down with them as well and and again I don't have numbers or anything like that but I just I wonder um, when this is all over how how much they're going to spike but I think if you know with so many people being home if neighbors can keep an eye on their neighbors and check in you know however it's safe to do so if they hear something you know say something get that help maybe the victim can't call the police but if a neighbor hears something they can call the police and I think you know knowing who our neighbors are and and knowing what to look out for I think that's probably the best way that that people can be kept as safe as possible given the circumstances Mm -hmm. what does a worst case scenario look like through isolation and abuse Unfortunately, the worst case scenario is, is homicide. Um, and that is not something that is really that unusual in Anchorage. I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but every year we see domestic violence homicide. And, um, that is, that is definitely the worst case scenario. And that's, that is why we have the emergency shelter and the services that we do to, to hopefully be able to help people before things reach that point. Mm-hmm. So what would you suggest women in abusive isolation situations do right now? Um, It's going to depend on their individual situation and whether they are able to reach out. For example, if if their abuser monitors their phone, um, that's going to be difficult. They'll they'll need to know how to, if they make a call, they'll need to know how to to erase that that data. but calling our crisis line at, at 272-0100 is a, a great way to get started on um, on getting out and getting out safely. We help um, people safety plan all of the time, and that looks different for each person. Um, but I think if they are able to reach out, if they maybe they're an essential worker and they are still leaving the house and they're not around their abuser all the time, or maybe they are doing that week's grocery run, um, something like that. There, there may be an opportunity to, to get help during that time. Um, if they're able to make that phone call to us, we can help them safety plan with, with those scenarios and um, make some suggestions on what to, what to have prepared, what to bring with them. If nothing else, they can come to the front door and push the buzzer. We are here all the time, 24 hours a day. There's always somebody here. Someone can run to the front door, and we will get them in the building and and get them safe and um, figure out how best to help them. Well, thank you so much, Heidi, for talking to me. Is there something maybe that I overlooked or something that you wanted to add? Um, no, I don't. I don't think. I think this is you know pretty good, pretty good coverage of of the. The issue, and I, I wish I had more more data on it, but um, but I really appreciate you covering it because I think in normal times it's such a it's such a huge issue, and it's I mean people people may have heard of the studies that the, that the university has done of of this affecting about half of the women in town, and you know those studies didn't didn't look at how it affects men, but they're they're affected in large numbers as well, and so there's a, there's a lot of people who were already dealing with this, and I think that now that our our you know, community is dealing with with a, a, another really big issue. I think the combination is just it's it's 
it can be fairly dangerous, and I'm, I'm glad that you're covering it and, and um, getting the word out to, to more people about how to access services. So I appreciate that. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.